This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Inside Carolina Own the Beat Live. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. We're sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt, johnnytshirt.com. Place to be for UNC gear place to be if you're an inside carolina premium subscriber they take care of us you take care of them by placing orders online or seeing them in store take care of them get 10 percent off it's on to be live that means we're about to get loose live on a Thursday night, eight o'clock. So here's what we're going to do first, folks. It's obviously Duke Carolina basketball week, Carolina Duke square off in Cameron on six o'clock, I believe on Saturday. But what we're going to do first, some big football news came down the pipe this week. Mac Brown made a hire. Well, lost an offensive line coach, had an interim stand in offensive coach for a minute, hired an offensive line coach, Buck Sanders. What do we make of all the movement right here prior to spring practice starting earlier in the week? I, I suppose it's probably the fruition of um, plans and hopes that people have had going back several weeks. Uh, I think probably the handwriting was on the wall for Stacy Searles, and he was probably uh, given opportunity to find a landing spot which he landed with a defending national champion. So let's not feel too sorry for, uh, Mr. Sorrells. Um, and at the same time, they brought in somebody that had worked with Longo in the past at all miss. Apparently they get along. Otherwise, why would he come here? Um, so he's worked with uh, Phil before on the offensive line. Uh, he's been well-traveled. Um, he's had, uh, several stints in the NFL, um, here, there, and everywhere. Uh, you know, I think it was a move that's probably, um, a breath of fresh air for the UNC offense and for the fans. Um, they spent a lot, awful lot of time, uh, talking about Sorrell's and, I suspect Mac Brown was ready for them to talk about something else. Um, so, uh, everybody's going to get a little something of what they wanted. And, uh, I think he'll do fine at UNC. He's familiar with Longo's style of offense. They get along. It's probably a good thing for North Carolina as well. It is, a. Uh... It's interesting timing. You're right, Buck. If anybody's on the Inside Carolina message board, especially the premium board, Stacey Searles was a, a, a guy that um, if you had to name one coach, and it's probably like this for every team in the country. I'm, in fact, I'm sure it is. If you had to name one coach that 
the fan base, at least the hardcore fan base, wanted to see moving along, it was the offensive line coach at Carolina. Mike, the fact that it happened right before spring practice, um, not ideal timing. Um, your take on that aspect of it, but also, look, Stacey Searles got ripped plenty on these podcasts, let's be frank, and he ends up at Georgia, of all places, defending national champions like Buck uh, mentioned. That is a – if you're going to fall, it's almost like he fell up and <laughs> ended up at Georgia. So your take on the timing and also the outcome for Searles. And before, well, Mike, before Mike gets started, though, hmm. you know, every offseason – we do our best to uh, go out and search for the latest and greatest technology that's out there to enhance these podcasts and, um, you know, do our best uh, to find things that will really improve the quality of what we do. So I went out and uh, purchased this uh, for Mike Ingersoll. What is that, a razor? No. No, no that is a... That is a sand timer. Oh. <laughs> so uh, be aware when you start talking, Mike, uh, I got this high tech device on you. Uh, so when you get, uh, get to uh, a little long winded, I will have uh, some visible evidence of that. That is hilarious, man. I am. I am. That is classic. Great move, but Mike, you're on the clock, brother. What, uh, what do you use to time Jason Staples, a sundial? <laughs> probably that the uh, pyramids yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> dang um ocean tides but um um two guys right, so buck asked two questions he said uh or tommy asked two questions excuse me <laughs> um it, what do i make of the timing and then you know what do i make of the end result for stacy uh I'll, I'll start with the end result for stacy obviously great end result for him um, college coaching, pro coaching is kind of incestuous. Um, once you're in the cycle, you, you're in the cycle. Um, once you get a power five job, you will typically retain a power five job in some capacity, no matter where you go. Um, not obviously there's exceptions to the rule, but head coaches usually don't fall farther than a coordinator spot or, you know, an associate head coach, position coach position. Um, you know, in the NFL, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, if you're a coordinator, you usually end up as nothing less than a position coach. Um, usually get an associate head coach or, you know, run game, pass game coordinator title or something. Um, but usually once you're in the pipeline, you're in the pipeline. And, and that's, you don't, you, you don't leave until um, you either get canceled or you choose to leave. Um, the, the former is becoming a little more frequent these days and people choosing to leave of their own volition. But uh, either way, there's really no there, there's uh, there there's only one involuntary way out it seems, and only one voluntary way out it seems from coaching once you're in it. So you know, Stacy getting a job at Georgia, um, it doesn't surprise me he got a Power Five job. It doesn't surprise me he got an SEC job. Um, he's an SEC guy himself. I mean, he was a he was a player at LSU. I think it was was he a was he an All American at LSU? Was that right? Something like that. And this is his second stint at Georgia. Yep, well, second, second time at Georgia. So he knows the program. He knows the layout. He understands it from recruiting. And, and, and I was talking to some people about what I think this is, and, and I could be completely wrong, and, and I don't mean this in any way to cast aspersions on Stacy, but it wouldn't surprise me if uh, he's there for a year and retires. And Kirby, him having known Kirby, having known the program, uh, 
he got an opportunity down there to sort of bridge the gap while Kirby finds a permanent solution for Georgia um, along the offensive line and gives him a chance to sort of take, you know, one more year, transition out and go out as an SEC guy um, since that's what he's really been his whole life. That's what his roots are. So, you know, again, pure speculation on my part. And I don't mean it to cast aspersions on Stacy in any way, shape or form. Um, just a, a random screwball theory I have. Uh, in terms of the timing for Carolina's purposes, um, before spring ball is not great, but you know the fact of the matter is if you're going to bring in a new coach at any position, they're not going to work with those players until the spring ball happens anyway. So really the, it's, there's not much of a detriment to the players in terms of feeling out their new coach and um, him being able to teach them from a technique standpoint. The, the hardest part of this is going to be on Bicknell because he's going to have to relearn Longo's offense. He's going to have to you know, figure out what tweaks and wrinkles they've thrown in since uh, since Longo's been gone, since they've parted ways or parted paths, I should say, um, over the last few years. And he's going to get have to get reacclimated to that offense, also a new coaching staff. People forget, you know, the coaching staff has its own locker room. There's a dynamic there. Um, there's interpersonal relationships there. Moving his family here, getting set up in Chapel Hill. There's a lot of stuff going to be going on outside of football, outside the football center for him. Um, so a lot of moving parts. It's going to be real hard on him to get up to speed but like buck pointed out he's a pro he's well traveled he's been doing this for a long time and it's certainly not his first rodeo so he'll handle that fine um and i don't think there's going to be that much of a of a drop off in terms of uh his effectiveness during spring ball because really spring ball is all about technique and and figuring out what your starting five or your your rotating eight guys is going to be for the next season anyway or at least who those seven eight guys are going to be going in a training camp um you can do that on literally no notice um if you've got you know 30 some odd years experience under your belt and you've seen as much stuff as Bicknell has so I'm not concerned about that I think he'll pick it up with the players just fine and they'll be off to the races let's uh let's get there's some questions coming in and, and I want to get to those but Buck I want to ask the question that we sort of talked about and, and you guys mentioned there in both your answers is the well-traveled portion of this I mean a lot of people look at it and say you know, in, in the common man world, I call it job hopping and, and, but in sports, it's more known to that. What is the benefit buck of, of a coach, whether it's big nail or anybody really, but big nail specifically, since we're talking about it, having been a lot of different places, um, how, however short, you know, a season. And I want to get your take too, Mike is he's been around a lot and he's bounced around a lot. A lot of people say that is a negative. I think it is probably a way to soak up more and to soak up and to be a sponge of more aspects of the job, more different coaches, just to learn more. Where, where do you stand on that aspect of all this, Buck? Well, it's funny that uh, I was looking at his uh, introduction last year at Louisville uh, when he was hired there uh, by Coach Satterfield. Uh, for a year and he was talking about this subject to some extent and said that you know he had been a lot of places and traveled and gone from here there and he was just he was hoping that louisville would be that place where he could settle down and stay for a while but for whatever reason that didn't happen and uh, one of the benefits i guess for unc's purposes is He's familiar with the ACC. I mean, he's been at Louisville for a year. Um, he's, of course, in a different division, but uh, he certainly knows 
uh, Wake Forest and NC State and other teams from a personnel standpoint. The fact that he spent several seasons uh, in the NFL, I think it was with the Giants and several others for multiple seasons uh, over the years, uh, tells me that um, he's very sound fundamentally. Um, I don't think you you bounce around the NFL teams uh, as the offensive line coach uh, unless you you kind of know what you're doing from a uh, fundamental standpoint. Um, other than that, I, I really don't have much to say about, uh, you know, I think there's pros and cons. Uh, it, it does make you wonder, you know, why he's never been at one particular place for a long period of time. Um, but he, he obviously from a coaching perspective knows what he's doing. Um, that, that's basically all my takeaways as far as his, the way he's been, moved around during his career mike from a player standpoint and i'll freely admit i can't remember your playing time at carolina or at least who was on the i remember your playing time but well i mean all the concussions mean i can't either so do your best (laughs) the uh the, the the changing coaches aspect of it how big a deal is that for players i mean it's not rocket science, right? Learning, learning the technique and all that, or is it different mm. from coach to coach? It's different from coach to coach. Um, so, so explain how that works in this type situation, because you and Jason Staples, and, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, a lot of people had had some things to say about Carolina's technique a lot over the past three years. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, you know, and it, 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 I don't think it was a, an inability of those players to execute it. Um, I'm not exactly sure what was going on. I know that our offensive line coach is now at Georgia and we got a new one coming in and I've watched some old miss tape and, and I've, I've tried to catch up on big at least for the past few years and figure out exactly what he's doing, what he's teaching his guys, particularly in pass protection, but also in the run game. Um, he, there are, there are two types of offensive line coaches. You can tell who they are by the way they teach pulls. You you got open pull coaches. That's your traditional drop your hip. So if I'm pulling left, I'm dropping my left hip, opening up, and I'm going straight down the line. I'm trying to adjust to stay flat to the line. And then you got square pull offensive line coaches. Um, square pull is you know basically some people call it a skip pull. You skip back. Your shoulder stays square to the line of scrimmage the entire time. Your eyes stay on the linebackers the entire time, and that's how you work your way to your assignment. Um. He's a square pull offensive line coach. Listen, there's, there's, there's good offensive linemen and good offensive line coaches that have done it both ways. I'm just saying that there's two different types of coaches. The way that he teaches things, as best I can tell, uh, is the type of school that I came out of, um, that I'm comfortable with, and that I think is the most effective because I've done it both ways. Um, and that, 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 that translates both from the gap scheme blocking uh, techniques that he's teaching to the pass protection techniques that I can tell he's teaching. Um, the one thing that gives me a little bit of concern is a lot of uh, his tackle play at some of the places he's been, some of the film that I've seen, which is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. And different players do different things to, you know, to get their assignment accomplished. Um, you know, old adage is from coaches is just do whatever you got to do. Just don't get me fired. 
Um, so, you know, you could teach guys to do things a certain way all you want, but you know, as long as they're winning their reps and then they're, you know, they're not, they're not losing and making you look bad. You don't really care. Um, so, you know, different tackles will do things a different way, but you can see the general foundation of what he's teaching. Um, there's some stuff that I've seen from, from the tackle spot that, uh, doesn't concern me, but it's not the way that, that I would maybe teach it, or at least it's not being executed in the game from those players, the way that I would want it to be executed, the way that I want it to look on film. Not that it's ineffective. Um, they had good tackle play at Ole Miss. Um, they've had good tackle play at other places he's been. Louisville, I thought, last year was an extremely talented offensive line. They um, uh, underperformed a little bit, but but frankly, I thought there were there were a lot of good players on that starting five. So, um, you know, at Bicknell, I think uh, the things that I've been able to see that he teaches, like I said, are the types of things I'm comfortable with evaluating. They're the things that I think work. Um, and... I'm hoping it can, we can clean up some of the issues we've had on our offensive line the last couple of years, particularly first and foremost, number one priority uh, twist games and working together in, in twist games and not getting beat on basic stunts, um, TE twist, ET twist, that kind of thing, um, tore us up the past couple of years. Um, we were able to hide it. You know, Jason's talked about it. I've talked about it. EJ's talked about it on these various podcasts, we were able to hide it because we had two really good running backs. So there was always a risk of, of run. There's always a risk of a swing out of the backfield and they're going for long yardage. So uh, we had two really good running backs for a couple of years that, that kept defenses honest, kept defensive coordinators honest. Um, when that threat was gone, not that we didn't have talent in the backfield. It's just, it was unproven talent uh, this past year. When that threat was gone, we saw a lot more uh, twist games and stuff happening up front that I was very surprised beat us as frequently as it did on the offensive line. Um, and it was something that never got corrected. Um, I don't know if it wasn't being drilled. I don't know if the technique that was being taught or the scheme that was being taught and how to defeat a twist uh, was ineffective. I don't know what was going on. I wasn't out of practice. All I know is that I kept seeing the same problem over and over and over again, and I want to beat my head against the wall. Uh, so I'm hoping Bicknell can solve that. I will say that I didn't see those issues at Ole Miss, but those are different players. Those are different defenses. Um, those are different games. So I can only judge so much off of what I see. Uh, from, from a film standpoint, you know, it's going to really matter what happens with these, with these current players. And we're rolling in some new ones. Um, another reason why spring ball really doesn't him coming in late to spring ball here doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of it, uh, because we're going to have new guys. You know, the majority of that offensive line next year is going to be rebuilt. It's going to be new. It's going to be new players up there. You know, this is, he's starting fresh, just like we're starting fresh. So they're all kind of coming in it together. They're all learning each other at the same time. So I, I'm not, I'm not overly concerned with that, but um, I am hoping that, and based on what I see on film, I think it will happen. We will get some of those major issues corrected, starting number one with twists. Indeed. I mean, I've got a question I'd like to ask Mike, if you don't mind. I don't mind, but let me let me say this. Somebody asked about um, the running backs and did they mask the OL problems the last three years, and I think Mike answered that question. I think we can all agree after watching last year versus the first two years of Mac 2.0 is that answer is yes. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> okay. Uh, here's where I'd like to uh, pick uh, Mike's brain a little bit is that um, on one of the uh, interviews or whatever I saw from big nail, uh, I saw him talk about, um, where he fell in love with the outside zone. He, he liked to, to coach the outside zone. Uh, 
that was like, he, he saw that as like a sort of bread and butter run play, uh, that sort of thing. I know that in the past, um, under Sorrells and under Longo to this point, uh, they've done some outside zone, some inside zone and some gap, uh, you know, um, run play design. And my question is how much does a offensive line coach influence an offensive coordinator in terms of the play calls or the, the running scheme. If you've got an offensive line coach that really likes outside zone, really likes to coach outside zone, is that going to show up more often in play calls or how, how does that work exactly that, that dynamic? Um, it's all going to be dependent upon whether that offensive line can do what Bicknell wants them to do in the outside zone. So Bicknell can love the outside zone all he wants. He can love, he can, he can love ISO plays. He can love, you know, trap plays. He can love whatever he wants. Um, he can love three-step drops. He can love play action off of power. He can love, you know, uh, goal line rollouts and, you know, two-point conversions. I, it doesn't really matter what he likes. It matters if he can impart the things that he likes effectively onto his offensive line and his offensive line can execute it effectively. Um, that's, what's going to influence the offensive coordinator. I will say that if, um, if outside zone for whatever reason happens to be, you know, his, one of his preferred schemes, uh, which is very specific in terms of you know, coaching preferences, you know, I, I, li I like the outside zone versus other types of plays, but if that, I mean, if he is in fact infatuated with the outside zone and he, and he thinks he's cracked the code on the outside zone, um, that offensive line is he will be able to teach that because he has a passion for it. I would say much more effectively, much better than maybe other, other plays because human nature is to focus on the things we like and the things that we're good at and to fine tune those. So if he, again, if he thinks he's cracked the code on outside zone and he's just a huge fan outside zone and he's enamored and he's enamored with it. Great. Um, we got to be good at something. And if that's what it's going to be, even better. Uh, frankly, in a speed offense, which is what I think Longo has been trying to impart, I think we've got the players for it. Um, outside zone can be wildly effective, um, and it can be a staple run concept, particularly in the type of offense that we're running. Um, what we're going to need to do is get a lot better on the second level with our offensive line, particularly on the back side. What, what happens on outside zone plays, they very rarely get blown up from the front side. They get blown up from the backside. So it's your will linebacker. It's a nickel. It's somebody, it's somebody shooting off the backside who's either left unaccounted for or the backside just kind of gets lazy and backside tackle or backside guard gets up, whiffs on their block. Um, they, they, they half speed it up to the second level because they either don't think they're going to get there or that guy's not going to be there. But if you watch film, um, and I'm speaking to the fans here, if you watch film, if you watch any you know TV copy, anything you can get your hands on, um, and you can identify when outside zones being run, I'd be willing to bet you that seven out of 10 times that an outside zone play gets blown up. It's getting blown up from the backside assignment. It's not getting blown up from the front. It's getting blown up from the front side. It's usually because a receiver has missed their block out on the edge and you had a corner slicing down. That's typically how that'll get blown up. It's not from the front side assignments. That's great stuff, uh, Mike, there for folks to look at. And you're right. I mean, it's a guy that should have been blocked 
way over there that mm-hmm. makes it makes his way down the line and scrapes down and makes the play. <clears throat> Let me ask a question concerning and it concerns the offensive line. Um, we've talked about how bad the sack situation was under Carolina in, in the last. I mean, Sam Howell got sacked more than anybody ever. It seemed like at times. But Buck, in your opinion, how how much difference does will quarterback play? make and and how much adjustment do you think Longo and Bicknell um in conjunction with each other how were that how were the offense shift given the fact that Sam Howell will be um, a number one draft pick here shortly what changes in the offense in your opinion it's hard to say and I think we'll just have to wait to see what happens in game I don't think practice is going to uh, give us much information about that, maybe a little bit, but um, there's two aspects of it from my way I look at it, which is some of the time that it takes between the ball being snapped and being thrown downfield uh, has to do with the design of the offense. If you have a offense that uh, likes to you know go four verticals all the time or likes to to hit the long game, which has been a staple of uh, Phil Longo's offense um, over these last five years at uh, North Carolina and Ole Miss, then it's going to take a little longer for that ball to get out of the backfield. So you're running more of a risk of getting a sack. uh, sack. Uh, The second aspect of it, I think, has to do with the individual player. some players are going to hold on to the ball um, because they are confident and certain that they're going to be able to make a play. And sometimes that they're overconfident in their ability to get out of there before a defender gets them to the ground. So, and I think Sam, bless his heart, was one of those guys that he was going to hold on to that ball to the last second uh, to make a play if he could. We'll see how. I mean, we don't know who's gonna who's gonna be Tommy Ashley's favorite player, um, who's gonna be the backup, and who's gonna be the starter. Um, but uh, so we'll just have to see how that goes. Is there somebody? Is are they different in the sense that um, I think both of them run the ball pretty well, at least from what I've seen. Um, is, is one of them uh, a little quicker um, to? get downfield if, when, if he feels pressure than the other, um, which one of them, if that guy's the guy that starts, you might see a, a fairly interesting, uh, change in the sack numbers. So I think there's a lot of factors in play there. Um, I think a lot of them are very dependent upon, um, uh, the offense and a lot of them are dependent upon the player himself. Mike, um, how much difference does it make to an offensive line who the quarterback is? Did y'all ever care? Um, no, um, that's a loaded question. I mean, we we cared because you do build a rapport with your quarterback. You understand where his launch points are going to be. You know how long it's going to take him in terms of backfield action, you know, ball action. Um, if you're running a play action today, we didn't run RPOs back, you know, back – back in my day. Um, but obviously everything's RPO. Now this offense is, is predicated on the RPO. I mean, there's a lot of ball action that happens at the backfield for that. So that's a lot of timing stuff. So 
from a pass protection standpoint, you know, you, you do build a rapport with your quarterback in terms of timing um, and, uh, and you develop a comfortability with him um, based on those things. And you know how long you got to hold your block, you know, based on how mobile he is or where he likes that launch point to be. If it's, if it's, you know, if it's a two-step, I don't want to call it a rollout, but you know, a, a half rollout, um, you know, or you're just changing the launch angle or the launch point um, for the throw and you know where that quarterback's going to be, either going to his right or his left, um, you know, that changes the way you set. Um, and obviously things, other things that factor in is the guy you're playing next to and how you, you know, the rapport you have with the offensive lineman who's next to you. So me as a tackle, you know, the relationship I have with Alan Pelk or Travis Bond, understanding those, those guys where they were going to be in terms of that pass protection scheme. But I knew that like with a guy like TJ, I was going to have, you know, certain plays, I'd have to get my guy a little bit wider, or maybe I just need to go ahead and just get him on the ground. Um, because I knew where TJ was going to be. I knew where he wanted to throw the ball. And I knew at what point he wanted to throw the ball based on the play we had. And based on the route tree, we were running behind him, you know, the route concepts. So, you know, that for him, there was that, there was one consideration for a guy like Bryn Renner. um, You know, there was a completely different consideration. You know, Bryn was uh, as the backup was less experienced back then. um, You know, the guys that played with him as the starting quarterback would say the same thing, um, you know, about the backup quarterback behind Bryn uh, Marquise. So, you know, there are, there are just – you do build a rapport with your quarterback. So, as far as, you know, does it matter to the offensive line who that player is? It, mattered, it matters, um, you know, just from a relational standpoint uh, and a playing experience standpoint. You know, at least, you know, you playing with him and that mesh that you might have. Um, there are quarterbacks who can get you out of trouble and make you look right more often than not. Mobile quarterbacks are not always the answer for that. Um, my experience has been that mobile quarterbacks, guys that are not run first, but le- can lean heavily on the run and can be uh, very effective while running the football as a quarterback. Uh, a lot of times those guys are not, they're not skittish, but it is not the last option for them to bail and take off. As an offensive lineman, you don't know when that's going to be. So, you know, a guy like, you know, think Lamar Jackson, you want the most extreme example. Um, he can make the offensive line look really good sometimes, but I'd be willing to bet that there were some, that there were some guards and some tackles who got sacks on their stat sheet because of Lamar Jackson taking off and running when they didn't think he would, or because Lamar Jackson was standing somewhere they didn't expect him to be. Um, and they had a, they had a defensive lineman just shed them at the last second. Um, that has happened to me too. Um, you get, you get quarterbacks that get happy feet and they get out, you know, they get outside the pocket or they get somewhere you don't expect them to be, um, you know, bad things might happen. So that's, it, you know, does do offensive linemen care about the quarterback that's playing back there? I think offensive linemen are creatures of habit. Um, we are uh, regimented and we like things predictable for very good reason. And uh, when you force us to deviate from that, the adjustment period can be uncomfortable. Interesting take. Let me, Buck, I'm come back to you, but I, I want to discuss this a little bit um, and it's sort of take off from what you said earlier, Buck, and it's also relevant to what Mike just said is how much can we really learn in spring practice about quarterbacks, about anything else? I mean, everybody's asking questions. What have we learned the most? Who do we expect to – I mean, we've seen guys for years covering this stuff and being uh, avid watchers of this stuff that have gone nuts in spring and n- done nothing and, and 
And I mean, I've, I've seen guys go nuts in one game, the first game of the season and then never appear again. So, but what can we really learn in this spring, this 2022 spring, Mac Brown is clearly upset about what's going on. He clearly wants things to change and wants things to be fixed. But when it comes to the players themselves, what can we truly learn over these next, uh, I guess, spring games, April 9th. So over next month, five weeks, what can we as watchers truly learn? I think there are a few things that uh, if, if you were in a position to observe spring practice on a regular basis, which we're not, you know, uh, but if you were, you know, someone that was able to, to attend spring practice, there are things you can learn. Like I think the, particularly probably more so in 2019 than 20 or 21. We knew from watching spring practice that there were going to be problems with drops. That was just evident on the field. You could just see guys not bringing the ball in and uh, it bounced an awful. One. So you, you can tell stuff like that a little bit. Uh, I think you can uh, – and, and it, I think it also depends upon the team. Um, you know, back when Mike Ingersoll was playing, uh, I interviewed Sam Pittman one time. And uh, Sam was saying that, uh, and, and that particular year uh, that I interviewed him, uh, you know, he had those guys on the offensive line like Mike was talking about. Um, you know, Travis Bond and Mike and uh, Alan Pelk and uh, some other guys uh, that were had with some experience and had been there for a while. Um, and on the defensive side of the ball, they were pretty loaded too. They had some good guys uh, playing on that defensive line. And Sam made the point that um, – you know, as, as you often hear the expression of steel sharpening steel, well, it helps if you have steel on both sides of the ball. So, uh, if, if you see, um, a great offensive line or experienced offensive line, taking advantage of an inexperienced defensive line day after day after day, you may not learn very much from that scenario or vice versa. But if you got, uh, you know, a couple of uh, guys that are more than a couple that, you know, are, uh, you know, contenders for or should be contenders for all AACC stuff, some veteran guys like uh, Ray Vahasek and um, Brian Anderson and uh, uh, Montilius and Ed Montilius and some others, um, then that. You know, one day if you hear, well, today the offensive line won, and the next day you hear, well, the defensive line won. That's a good sign, I think, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you've got some real competition going on between the lines, um, and, and a few other things you can learn, I, I believe. But uh, you know, you always have to bear in mind that aspect of Carolina's playing Carolina, and you really don't want a situation where the offensive line just dominates day after day after day after day, or, uh, the defensive, uh, secondary, uh, doesn't allow a catch, uh, you know, in every practice you'd like to see 
um, one side win, the other side win one day, the other one the next day. Uh, I think that's a little bit more instructive. You can learn more, I think, um, in that scenario. Mike, from a player standpoint, I mean, obviously you want to dominate every day. But if you're going out and you're dominating every day in spring practice, to Buck's point, that's not good. Um, or, you know, how do the players view it? And, and also, what do you expect to learn in this spring practice? Um, and we can stay with the offensive line or you can go elsewhere. Um, everybody's talking about the quarterback situation. And I've already got a number six jersey on the, on the wall over there. It's not a – it's not the current number six, but it's the former number six, and it's up there. So I've got it, Buck, if I need it. But, Mike, what have you learned? And, and from a player standpoint, what are you trying to accomplish in spring ball? Um, well, Buck makes a great point that, uh, you know, it really depends on what you have in that locker room. So, you know, and it depends on the phase of your career that you're in, too. My, um, my sophomore year, I remember Kyle Jolly was out. Um, he was our starting left tackle. So I, I started a left tackle, um, my, so, my second spring ball, my sophomore spring ball. Um, I started at left tackle for us all through the spring, but I knew that when Kyle came back, he was going to be the starting left tackle. Um, I, I, I especially knew that because he was my roommate and he made sure he told me as frequently as humanly possible. You know, when I come back, that's my spot. <laughs> So, you know, I, I knew that I was, I was a placeholder. I was keeping the seat warm for him, but it was an opportunity for me to play um, what is often considered uh, the most difficult position on the offensive line, left tackle. Um, I had an opportunity to play with uh, Garrett Reynolds, Lowell Dyer, some other really experienced guys on that offensive line up front. Um, and I used it as an opportunity to get better and prepare myself for one day when I was going to be the full-time starter. Um, that's one approach. Um, my junior year, my, th my third spring ball, um, or going into my junior year, I should say, I had every expectation that I was going to be the starting right tackle. So I used it as an opportunity to get, to fine tune the things that I knew I needed to get better at, uh, while not regressing in the areas that I, that I had already improved. And I felt like I was established from a technique standpoint, I, I use spring ball as an opportunity to get a little bit better there and to solidify my spot. Um, so there's, there was just, there was more, there was more tension. There was more expectations. There was more pressure, whether that was self-imposed or it was coming from externally, um, either way. I mean, that's, I remember that spring ball specifically, you know, that was me fighting. That was me fighting for my job. That was me fighting for my life to establish myself as that guy. Um, my senior year was, was a little, going into my senior year was a little bit different, different story. That was kind of the last hurrahs, the final spring ball going into the final training camp. Um, so really it was, how am I going to prepare for LSU? How am I preparing for the next season? I, you know, I've done the work. I'm going to be the starter. I know that. So now let me just, now I can focus on me and I can focus on the things that I need to get better at. I don't need to be looking over my shoulder. I don't need to be worrying about, um, you know, competing for a job. Um, obviously you're always competing for your job, but there is, you know, there, there's a little more confidence. There's a little more job security that comes along with it after you've been that guy for a whole season. Um, so senior year was a little different attitude for me, but what I will say is point Buck makes about the interview he had with Sam Pittman, you know, iron sharpening iron, and it helps when you got iron on both sides. Um, we felt like 
that defensive line that we had. I can only talk about my personal experience and I'm not talking about the good old days. I'm not talking about, this isn't, you know, nostalgia burger time, but, um, cause I think there's some parallels to what we're about to see in this spring ball. And I'll get to that point in two seconds, but I think the, um, the, we understood as an offensive line, that was an extremely talented defensive line. We had across from us it was an extremely talented defense. Generally. Um, we felt like that we were never going to face defensive linemen. We we're never going to face a pass rush. We we're never going to face a run defense as good, no matter what game we played that season going into 2010. Um, we were not going to face a unit that was as good as the guys we had in practice every single day. So we wanted to play against the first team defense. We wanted, like, as an offensive line, we wanted that. We welcomed that. And there were many days we didn't win those, we didn't win those matchups, but there were a lot of days that we did. And it went back and forth. And I always, I always analogize it to, uh, you know, you're, you're on deck and you've kind of got, you kind of got like a, it's like a donut on the baseball bat kind of thing. Practice is really, really hard. It's really heavy. You're developing that muscle memory and you're going against the toughest competition you're going to face. Then we get to the game. The game isn't as hard because there aren't guys on the other side of the ball that frankly were as good as the guys for the most part, you'd have an Allen Bailey at Miami or you'd have some guys here and there, but overall there were not guys on, on any team that we played that were as talented as the guys that we faced in practice on a daily basis until the NCAA came and ripped us, you know, ripped us a new one. But up until that point, it was like practicing with a donut on the bat. Um, and that's how it felt came get, come game day. Those back and forth battles were great for building confidence, but it also, it was also great for keeping you in check from an ego standpoint. So like I just mentioned, going into my senior year, I felt like I was established. I had some confidence. I had, there, there were less things I needed to work on, but I understood the holes in my game and I could focus on that, but I still had to stay good at the stuff that I was good at because if I didn't, if I was off for one play, if one, if one bit of my technique was off in any given pass set or any given run set, um, I was going to get exposed and I was going to get embarrassed because I had really talented guys across from me. So it forced, you know, it, it, that, that sort of give and take back and forth when you have good players on both sides or players of similar experience on both sides really does help to make the practice experience better. It makes it more fulfilling. You get more out of it in the long run. It sucks while it's happening, but in the end you end up seeing more benefit. I think we're going to see something similar this spring ball, because like I said, we're going to have guys, we're going to have big pieces in that offensive line that we have to replace. There's pieces on that defensive line that have to be replaced too. And all of those guys are going to be fighting for a job. So it's going to be hyper-competitive. So what you'll see is inexperienced guy against inexperienced guy, and they're both sort of learning and they're screwing up in their own individual ways. So like to Buck's point, you're not going to be able to take a ton out of spring ball, but what, what you are going to see is a pretty even comparison in terms of talent is concerned. So the potential in the players that you're seeing, at least in your O-line and D-line matchups, the potential you see there, whether you glean that from successes or failures from either player, I think is going to be a more true accounting of what you're looking at going into training camp. And then it's up to those players in the summertime between spring ball and training camp to take the stuff that they saw they weren't doing well in spring ball, fine tune it, hone it over the summertime, and then, and then try to walk into training camp having taken one step ahead in whatever deficiency they might have. But because you've got guys of similar talent and experience level across from you or across from them, I should say, um, I think, again, when you watch the practice, when you watch practice, um, probably middle of training camp, you'll have a better idea. End of spring ball, middle of training camp, you'll really be able to tell 
in a more truthful, honest, transparent way, what you're looking at from a production standpoint in the trenches. Solid. Buck Sanders, close out this football portion of this uh, On The Beat Live um, before at least I take a short intermission and <laughs> before the basketball starts. Your take on where we are, coaching staff-wise, um, you know, status, what Max says. Greg Gregory might have some questions as well. But, you know, are we happier – as observers today, and I'm trying to rope in everybody that follows Carolina football than we were four days ago at the, at the direction of this team and the direction that the spring practice holds. I don't know about the four-day um, time period, but I, I will say this, and, um, you know, it's going to be become – even more of a broken record than it already has. But um, if you've listened to a lot of the players, um, I think Gene Chizik makes a heck of a difference to this team. Um, if you listen to and, – and I'm talking about guys even that were on the offensive side of the ball when he were here. Taylor Vipolis is just in love with that guy. Um, and uh, – and, and, and obviously, uh, you know, you see Shaq Rashad talk about him on the uh, Players' Lounge um, podcast. And it, if you're not actually listening to those, you should because there's a lot of good information that comes across in those and the podcasts. And the opinion of guys who played for him and played with him, by the way, in terms of Taylor and Shaq as, and, as in relationship to Gene Chizik, that matters a lot those opinions really do matter because those are the guys that are with that person every single day. And there are players, there are coaches that I played for that I won't endorse. And there are coaches that I will endorse. Um, different staffs, different arrows, but that, that carries a lot of water. And in the, in the, I think the last one we we saw was uh, with Cedric Gray and uh, Cedric went to that point when they, when they, now, Shaq and Vip both being Chiswick guys kind of kind of led him down that path. But, you know, um, Gray just jumped right in there and said, you know, uh, it was just completely different. Um, when Chiswick walked in the room, uh, that he is a very structured guy that believes in structure and discipline and, you know, everything is mapped out. Um, at uh, 12.31, you're going to run this drill. At 12.33, you're going to run this drill kind of thing. Um, so uh, I think and if you don't, And if you ain't got it right from the 12.31 drill, we're moving on to 12.33 and you're getting left behind. Yep. Along those lines, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and and um, I, I do think probably um, we're, we're getting even a better version of Gene Chizik than we got back when he was here the first time. Um, and, and I'm hoping that his time spent with the SEC network has, uh, broadened his horizons schematically a little bit, or just, uh, uh, let him know that he might have to modernize a few things. But, uh, I, I think, I think that Chiswick will make a big difference on the defensive side of the ball. 
Um, and, and Gray, Gray talked about that. He said that like the first meeting that they went to, they're in a defensive meeting and whatever, uh, that um, they didn't talk about one play. There, there was no discussion about uh, going over a particular play uh, during that entire whatever hour and a half long meeting. It was just about the structure. This is how we're going to do things, blah, 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 blah. So um, I think the uh, players seem to appreciate that. They, I think they, um, it's a style and form and way of teaching the game that I think players crave. They, they like to know, you know, what are we doing now? What's our next thing to do? I mean, rather than being left in doubt or whatever. So um, that's my takeaway. Uh, if we should feel better, um, take that four-day period out of it. We should have started to feel better when they hired Gene Chizik um, because he was going to bring a known quantity to this team that had been missing up to this point. Yep. Party like it's 2015. Gene Chiswick comes back. You're right. I agree with all, everything you said. I agree with everything both you guys have said during this portion of the show. I mean, look, uh, wasn't too terribly long ago, people were fretting about Carolina football. Now the hype's coming back. And we'll get together in August, and who knows what the picks are going to be. Um, but we'll, we'll put them down. But, you know, you, you know you, when you say stuff like that, it's like, Hit me if you see an opening, Buck. You know, <laughs> you're the <laughs> only one that I allow to abuse me, Buck. Tom, Tommy had a giant vat of Kool Aid he was mixing before he hopped on <laughs> this podcast. I uh, people are uh, starting to drink it again. I agree. I am. Um, well, that's just a typical Carolina football cycle. You're just in the middle of it. <laughs> it is definitely. We need to write one up because it is spot on. But Mike and Buck, I appreciate y'all coming on to discuss. Uh, the new offensive line coach, but not only that, the, the Carolina spring that we see going on in Chapel Hill, Mac Brown 2.0 in year three, all, April 9th. Here's what I hope. I hope we all can get together on April 9th and go see a spring game. Mike, you can come from Charlotte. Buck, you can come up from the beach. We can go hang out. Gregory can show us around town. We can go see spring game in Keenan football center in Keenan stadium again and get the band back boys. It's been fun. It has. Yep. Thanks guys. Later guys. Yeah. Appreciate it to you guys. We're going to take a short time to talk about Johnny t-shirt, Johnny t-shirt.com. Certainly great sponsors of inside Carolina. You need to take care of them as they take care of us. Get 10% off if you're a premium subscriber, but also it's just cool to support people. Carolina alums that are doing their thing and Johnny t-shirts been doing it forever literally one of my first things I did on campus when I started there well before Gregory was born I bought a pair of sunglasses at Johnny t-shirt don't know if they still carry sunglasses but they've got everything else you need Carolina football Carolina basketball and most importantly now Carolina baseball related Gregory is going to have to hang out with me on Saturday at the Carolina Coastal Carolina game. So come on out to the Bosch, get you some Johnny T-shirt baseball gear and come see us. Going to take a short break, let the national guys pay the bills. We'll be right back. Greg Barnes, Sherelle McMillan, Gregory Hall, and just me, the host. Carolina Duke Week is finally here, two days away. 
six o'clock and Cameron will talk about it after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Own the Beat Live. I'm the host, Tommy Ashley, sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt, johnnytshirt.com. Hour number two here, Gregory Hall, man in the wheels, taking questions and kicking out content. We are joined by Sherelle McMillan and Greg Barnes. Greg and Sherelle, we spent the first hour of the show talking about Carolina football and the new offensive line coach and all that with Buck Sanders and Mike Ingersoll. But I think what we need to get into now at 9.08 on Thursday, March 3rd, is there's a, there's a basketball game on Saturday over in Cameron uh, that's pretty important. And it's not just important because of all the pageantry, pageantry and all that stuff and who's retiring and whose last game it is. But, Greg, this game, while it might not be as important for North Carolina's NCAA tournament hopes, this game's important for Hubert Davis, I think, to, to show what Carolina basketball can be about under Hubert Davis. Your thoughts on that regard, in that regard? Absolutely. And I think it's really – North Carolina needs to play well uh, just to make sure people you know, have faith. There's always going to be – people that have questions about Hubert coming into this year. Why? He's never coached before. Those are legitimate concerns. And so while you have a lot of people who are like, well, he's Roy's choice. He's a Carolina guy playing NBA. We trust him. You're always going to have those types, but you're also going to have those who are like, wait a minute, maybe we should have gone with a more experienced guy. And so what Hubert has to do, and it's a tough task is you have to bring those sides together. And you have to peep, make the people who are a little bit skeptical of the hire, you have to convince them that, look, there's going to be up and downs. There already have been up and downs, but we're headed in the right direction. Uh, and I think a, a solid performance on Saturday helps that. Uh, I think that helps get North Carolina in the NCAA tournament, which I think is most important. But beyond that, if North Carolina is somehow able to win this game, Hubert Davis answers so many questions within the fan base. And even for the people who maybe still have questions, if Hubert can win on Cameron's court, on Coach K's final home game, come on. He, he will be forever remembered for that. He will have something that, that Dean didn't have, something that Roy didn't have. I mean, that that is a uh, – an award, a trophy over Duke that nobody's had. That would be tremendous. Think we talked about before. 
Think about that 2016 when Hansbrough and Frazier and Ginyard and all those guys were freshmen. They go into Cameron on J.J. Reddick's senior night and win. Those guys are still getting drinks bought for them because of that game. And that was Reddick. That wasn't Coach K. And so that, that was kind of the key thing. The reason I, I frame my story today about that, the opportunity here is immense. Like everybody expects them to lose this game. Just reading the media coverage and watching clips and stuff, it's astounding. It's like, hey, this is going to be the great send-off for Coach K. And, yeah, they're playing Carolina. But, I mean, yeah, this is Coach K. It's crazy. And I get that Duke's a better team than North Carolina and all those things, and they embarrass Carolina on the Smith Center court. But Duke's not that much better than Carolina. I don't think Duke's you know, the best team in the country by any stretch. Um, so a lot of pressure on Duke, no pressure whatsoever on Hubert. I thought it was perfect for Hubert to say that he wasn't a betty man and therefore he didn't know what house money was. I thought that was a great line because uh, that speaks exactly to who he is. But, I mean, he, North Carolina is walking in there with no pressure whatsoever on their shoulders, and I think it's just a, a great opportunity to, to really shock the world. Have you seen the uh, Ken Palm percentage chance of winning? What fifteen percent was last I saw? Is that still? Yeah, it's still fifteen. It's the lowest chance that they've had in any game this season by far. I think the next closest was like thirty-three or something like that. That might be an ever. Sherelle, where's your where's your stance on this on on this ball game? I, I do think that if they were to win, it would be for not just the game itself, but for everything that surrounds it, it would be the biggest regular season win Carolina's had. Maybe since they beat Kentucky back in the day, there's a poster on the wall for it. Um, and that was a long time ago. I can't even remember when that was. You, yeah. You, I, you, I mean, I would say my lifetime. <clears throat> so I don't want to get my age, but let's just say 30 plus years. Uh, I, I think it'd be the biggest regular season win in 30 plus years. I, personally, I would say it's, it's the biggest, but I know there's probably some games from, you know, the seventies and sixties that I wasn't around for that were hugely important um, at that time, but that's the kind of um, atmosphere that UNC is going into on Saturday. And uh, you know, I, I hate to say if North Carolina can compete because that's kind of a, a, a loser's mentality, but it, that is kind of what you want to see. You want to see them be able to, to take a punch, give a punch, take a punch, and then give another punch back instead of taking a punch and getting hit on the ground and then just getting mauled, you know, for the final 37 minutes of the game. Um, these numbers are the ones that I think are framing how we're thinking about this game. 93 to 84, which was the loss to Purdue. 89 to 72, the loss to Tennessee. 98 to 69, the loss to Kentucky. 85 to 57, the loss to Miami, and 90, 98 to 76, the loss to Wake Forest, and then 87 to 67, the loss to Duke. So they haven't shown really outside of a few minutes against Purdue that they can play with a good team. Um, I don't think Virginia Tech is at the level of these other teams that we mentioned. Um, and this game is on the road as well, in which they've had some struggles, not here lately, but at the beginning of the season. So I just want to see – competitiveness, um, energy, effort, and toughness have not been brought up in a few weeks. That's not an issue anymore. I think Puff Johnson has a lot to do with that. I think Brady Manick has a lot to do with that. Um, but, you know, going into Saturday, like Greg said, there's, there's no pressure on them whatsoever, but they have to show well because 
Um, while I think they're in the NCAA tournament, and I think a lot of other people do, you know, you lose by 30 to Duke and then losing the first round of the ACC tournament, and then you're right back there on Selection Sunday wondering if you're going to get in. So they just need to have a, a good performance. And, and I hate that because it's, it's North Carolina. It shouldn't be uh, moral victories, but I think that's where they are. Yeah, and Tommy, the, the, those numbers that, that Rail just laid out with the losses – uh, one one unique aspect of this is all those games uh, were against teams that they didn't have a rematch with. And so we've talked a lot about this year, how North Carolina has bounced back from some of these bad losses. And they, they deserve credit for that. What we've not seen is, okay, what if they play Wake Forest again? What if they play Miami again? How do they respond? How does that first game impact them? Were they embarrassed enough that they come out and play better? Well, we're going to find out on Saturday. And I, I think that helps because they were embarrassed in Chapel Hill. Um, and so that, that should take care of maybe the, the toughness angle and the, the focus part of it. Now, going in the, the Cameron and the Lions, then that's going to be, we've talked a lot about it before, you've got to withstand those opening couple minutes. But I think at least that, that ability to have a, a revenge factor helps address some of those earlier concerns. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you mentioned it, y'all mentioned it, they need to be competitive. And I agree that normally sounds like a, a loser mentality, but the problem is they need to be competitive early so it can be competitive late because you can't get behind, what was it, 33 to nine or something like that. It reminded me of the final four, 40 to 12 game with Kansas. And that game got that game almost, you know, Billy Packer almost ate his shoe in that one if a three-pointer drops. But against Duke the first time, it just wasn't competitive from the start. And I think they need to come in and be competitive out of the gate. And I think an important factor here is Puff Johnson. People are mentioning him in, in the chat. I mean, Gregory, you can chime in first, but I want to get everybody's stand, take on it because I've saw, I was in uh, PNC. I almost said Reynolds. I was in PNC. And Puff has the best game he's had, right? But what got me watching him is how physical he was, how um, in your face he was, how aggressive he was. I just didn't know that that was his nature. Gregory, I think that is a huge part of this game on Saturday is for him to be able to guard somebody and be able to get up in somebody because nobody did that a month ago in Chapel Hill. Yeah, Puff played eight minutes against Duke in Chapel Hill. And that was kind of the beginning of what we saw more of Puff. The next game again, or actually no, in Clemson, he played zero minutes. Um, Virginia, yeah, it's just, I mean, the whole thing about the bench and whatnot. But that was kind of the start of like, okay, this guy Puff is bringing in an effort that should be rewarded with time on the court. And it has been the last few games. And you're right, it started with not started, but it was reached its peak against NC state. Um, and people are asking, do you put him on Griffin? How do you move guys around? Puff's not going to start. Like that's just not because you need to be Duke with points and you're going to get points from Brady Manic. And yes, you can get points from Puff, but you need Brady Manic out there mainly in my opinion. Yes. Cause of his shooting ability, but because of his ability to cut when Miami went in and beat Duke, at Cameron, they back backdoor cut Duke to death. When Virginia went in at Cameron and beat Duke, they backdoor cut Duke to death. Like that's Duke's main weakness. If you try to take Duke one on one, 
you're not winning, especially people are talking about Duke's better one through five and, and things like that. And I think to your point about Puff, that's where he comes in, which is his ability of constant movement. You see him on the floor um, as he's gotten more comfortable offensively. He's moving around a lot, whether it's setting screens to try to get his other teammates open, things like that. So offensively and defensively, I think he can be effective. And at the end of the day, he's got five fouls to divvy out on guys like A.J. Griffin, Trevor Keels, whoever they put him on when, when he's in. Um, so I, I, I would like to say that he's going to have more than 15 minutes in this game if UNC has a chance. That's just my kind of opinion. Uh, and I wanted to go further in the puff thing, but Schlegel took my question. We must be related or something. Greg, I don't remember Carolina having a back running a backdoor play all year. I'm sure it's happened. They're like three against Syracuse. Well, I mean, that's Syracuse's own. I'm talking about a traditional, you know, Michael Norwood against Duke on senior day, backdoor cut and all that. It just doesn't seem like a thing as much. And to Gregory's point, Greg, is that's, that's Duke's been, has gotten in trouble overplaying when you eat them up backside. Is that something that maybe changes up for Carolina and Hubert Davis in this round? I mean, you know, that's a, that's a tweak that maybe he implements. But, yeah, we just haven't seen a whole lot of that uh, out, of, out of what he's wanted to do this year. We've seen a, yeah, predominantly he's, he's run with the, the horn sets. Uh, that's, that's the bulk of what we've seen. Uh, but in terms of Puff, uh, I, I think the issue is Hubert Davis is, is pretty set in his lineup. And part of that is out of necessity. Uh, you know, Baycott's a five. You really only have one legitimate four in Brady. And he's you know, one of your two best outside shooters. Uh, and I know Puff had a good game offensively against State. He's had one good game offensively. And so when you put him out there, yes, you get energy. Yes, you get a good boost off the bench. But you're kind of sacrificing scoring if you don't sub him in for for Leaky. Uh, So if you put Leaky and Puff on the court at the same time, one of your scores basically has to come off the floor. And I agree with Gregory. You are going to have to outscore Duke. Duke's has been good defensively. And so I think that's kind of the challenge. I think the biggest benefit for, for Puff is that he brings five fouls. I think that's a astute point because they're going to need it most likely. Uh, but just in terms of getting him a lot of minutes, I'm just having a hard time trying to figure out exactly where you're going to put him, especially now that that kills his back healthy and uh, playing, you know, arguably like, like the best player on, on Duke's team, maybe other than AJ Griffin. Sherelle, who guards Griffin? Who guards Bancaro? <laughs> uh, I, I think the same thing. I think you have to um, go to Brady and say, we, we thank you for your service and do the best you can. And you have to allow Bancaro to do whatever he's going to do and choke off everything else. Because the issue in the game in the Smith Center wasn't Bancaro, even though he helped get the second foul on uh, uh, Baycott. It was Griffin. And if you use Leaky on Griffin, at least he can slow him down, especially from the perimeter with his length, closing out on shots. And then, you know, Bancaro is not a great three-point shooter. He can make the shots. But I think uh, I, I read something, and I apologize to the person who's, who sent this ad, but Griffin is making something like 80% of his corner threes. And, I mean, that's 
you just you can't allow that. It's much safer to let Mancaro get the ball in the high post, take a jumper, or try to back down Brady Manic. And obviously, getting Brady Manic in foul trouble is not great for your offense. But I kind of disagree with Greg and Gregory. I think this is a game that North Carolina is going to have to grind. They're going to have to slow things down as hard as that is for Carolina fans to hear because they are the the uh, less athletic team in this contest. And then they're going to have to uh, make shots. That's their, their their course to win the game is to slow it down, um, play well in the half court, and then have the best defensive game, you know, maybe of their lives to try and slow down Duke. Something else I saw that like in the last four games, Duke is shooting 44% from three as a team and something like 52% from the field. Um, so, you know, you, you have to slow that down somehow. They can't play the kind of defense that they've played at times this year and win this game, no matter how well they're shooting. They could shoot 60%, but if they're playing the type of defense that isn't, um, you know, uh, snuffing out some of Duke's shooters and isn't uh, making it difficult for them, then it's not going to matter. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I think the defense, to me, in this game is is the key. Uh, we all agree, and Baycott said it in the presser I listened to today, that he's got to stay on the court. Um, he, he has to stay on the court. I've always said, and I think it, it probably came from Roy or somebody, you can get points back, you can't get fouls back, and that's where Baycott got in trouble in the first half. But, Greg, um, I tend to agree with Sherelle. Um I'm letting Bancaro do what he wants. If Bancaro wants to come out and hit five or six threes, then he just does. But they can't let Griffin get going um, because he seems like the engine. When he's played really well, Duke's been really good. And we haven't even talked about Trevor Keels and all that. But um, we haven't talked about match- we haven't talked about who I think is the most important player for them either. Um, Mark Williams or Jeremy I, Roach? I think Mark Williams, from a Carolina perspective, is the most important player for Duke. Because if you, you uh, we talked about how Duke is playing aggressive and how they overplay. Well, if you had a seven foot one guy who blocks everything behind you, you would overplay too because you know you have somebody to clean up your mess. So if you can get him in foul trouble somehow, then that takes away a serious threat inside, both for Armando Baycott and then for guys as they're driving to the basket. It also makes it more difficult to overplay because you don't have. You have some protection, but you don't have the same protection with, with John and uh, with Bancaro. So I, I think North Carolina needs to kind of use Duke's game plan um, in the first game, which was very clearly get Armando Baycott in foul trouble. They need to try to do the same thing with, with Mark Williams because that opens everything up offensively, I think, for UNC. Completely changes the game. What do you think, Gregory? What's Carolina? Do you go at Mark Williams straight out of the gate every time down? The only one-on-one that you should be doing offensively is Baycott on Mark Williams. Everything else can't be one-on-one. You can't, Caleb Love can't drive one-on-one against Wendell Moore. That's who guarded him last time, right? Was it Moore? Um, You just, that's the, the four out one in, but one in is the only one-on-one and Baycott needs to be cognizant of the fact that Williams is a good shot blocker. And if that first move isn't there, pass it out. They just, they just have to play smart and they can't, they can't ego challenge Duke at all with one-on-one because if you do that, you're going to lose. I don't care. The only way is if you make every single shot and that's not going to happen. That just doesn't have, that's not how basketball works. Right. Um, you just can't ego challenge Duke one-on-one um, Mark, Mark Williams down low. You can, because then 
maybe you get lucky and get some foul trouble going if Baycott being physical, but if it's not there, then you have to pass it out. Cause then you're going to turn it over. Like Mark Williams is going to be ACC defender of the year for a reason. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, I think the ego challenging part is the most important piece because it's not going to work if they try, if they act better than Duke. Well, right. And I agree with that. I think you, if you slow this game down, that's fine. But what that does that, that, increases the value of each possession. And if Carolina has had issues throughout the year, and yes, they've gotten better towards the latter part of the season, it's it's turning the ball over at times, and it's also taking really bad shots, and it's getting frustrated. So I absolutely agree that you've got to get the ball inside to Baycott, give him room to work, and let him see what he can do because Coach K is not going to double him. He's going to let Mark Williams defend him. And what that means is, as Gregory said, Mark Williams is going to be defensive player of the year. He's, a, he's, he's got incredible length. So he's going to win that matchup and occasionally. What Carolina cannot have happen is get frustrated. Know that Baycott is going to maybe turn the ball over. He's going to make a bad pass. He's going to take some shots that don't go in because they're contested. That's okay. That's still your ideal shot. What you don't want is to get frustrated and stop going inside, stop trying to go inside, and then jack up an occasional bad shot because those are wasted possessions. And I understand the Caleb Love dynamic. You know, yeah, the shot at the end of the Syracuse game was great because it went in. But it was, what, 28 feet? Um, you live, as, as Baycott said, you kind of live and die with how he is. That doesn't mean all of his shots are great shots. He that took a lot of bad shots in that game. You can't have that, especially if you're going to lower the possessions. You have to be very clean. You have to be very efficient and very patient in an incredibly hostile environment. That is asking a lot. Now, the, the you know, converse of that, of course, is, well, if you get going too fast, you lose control. You allow them to have some easy buckets. That gets the players route up. You have to pick and choose, and that's that's where the challenge is for Hubert because we can talk about the Baycott on Bencaro matchup all we want. That was Hubert Davis being a first-year head coach getting out over his skis. And let's be honest about it. That was a bad decision, and it ended up biting his team in the rear. It's fine. It happens. You learn from it. You move on. Uh, but you just have to make very good decisions in how you approach Duke and in how you want to play, and you've got to adhere to it. And that that's not just the coaching staff, that's the players understanding what's being asked of them. Uh, Sherelle, when we talk about Mark Williams, this is something that frustrates me when I watch basketball players in general, is they play not to get their shot blocked rather than just going at guys. Mm. And you know, you know what I think <clears throat> about the game and what I've said a lot. If Carolina will attack Mark Williams – Baycott specifically, but anybody else, save maybe RJ, because RJ would have trouble going at him. They've got to go at this guy. And if he blocks it, he blocks it. But if he goes, if they go at him, um, there's a good opportunity that they'll call a foul eventually. Um, isn't that a big part of this for Baycott? Because I say, uh, even for Baycott, I feel like sometimes he tries to avoid getting his shot blocked um, by his primary defender. And that's just not going to cut it Saturday. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, you have to go into his chest that, you know, that's the way the, you have to bully a bully, not saying that Mark Williams is a bad person or anything, but he's an intimidating shot blocker. And the only way to, to get him to back down is to try to go into his chest. Um, we didn't really get to see how much Armando Baycott could do that in game one, because he, you know, frankly didn't play much in the first half and then the game was over um, when he was, when he came back in. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. I think overall with, with Williams, um, you know, you just have to, you just have to, you just have to play him hard. You have to play him tough. That's the key. I think um, at times we wonder about Armando Bacot's, you know, finishing ability around the rim. Um, sometimes, you know, he kind of avoids the contact. This is a game where you can't do that. And the guy's taking a beating, as you've said, all year. And this is, you know, his chance, I think, to make the case, hey, I, I'm beginning fouled. Let me show you <laughs> because I'm going into his chest. You have to call this foul. I think that's the kind of way the, the way he has to play it. So no, um, you know, no turnaround jump shots, really quick, decisive moves, um, jump hooks, those type of things to keep uh, Williams at bay. That's that's what he has to do. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Baycott without foul trouble is up around 38 or 39 minutes. It's just it's going to be that kind of game for him. UNC is 15 and 0 when they have at least 15 assists. And Terrell's credit there about Armando being decisive and getting that ball and going up quickly, most of that, that time will come up like with an assist if he's that quick. He needs to be that quick and decisive. And that's just it's going to be a key stat on Saturday because this team, when they're moving the ball, um, and I, you can take out the Syracuse game because that's kind of the only way to beat Syracuse is to pass the ball, right? Syracuse is, I think, last in the country and allowed assist ratio because of the defense that they play. But the other 14 games, that's when UNC has been at their best. Yeah, I put in the slack, is there a stat on catch and shoot threes versus pounding it into the floor threes for this team? I mean, Adrian Atkinson's they, working on that for us. When, when they move it, they shoot it better. Greg, and you can, sorry, and Tom, you can always repost. Like, I think people forget that just because you throw it out to the three-point line doesn't mean that the guards have a license to take the three. They can always yeah. just throw it back into them and let them, you know, reestablish position and go, go back at it again. That's another thing we haven't seen a ton for this. It's either, it's either Baycott's putting it up or it's getting kicked out for, for a three. And I, you're right. I, I think patience is key here, but they've got to be aggressive with the basketball. There's going to be, um, you know, somebody in the chat's already talking about the officials. I would love to see it called like it was against uh, maybe Syracuse where they don't call a ton and let them play. But the bottom line is if, if Brady Mannix on Ben Kerr, you got to draw that charge because he's going to back you down. You got to do those type things. But Greg, let's get out of the post and let's talk about the guard play because, I, you know, Caleb Love and RJ Davis have to be good for Carolina to have a chance. Yeah. I don't think that's, there's any question about that. And if you look at what happened in uh, the first game, RJ Davis, had eight points on three of 10 shooting, four assists, four turnovers. No, sorry, that's, that's Caleb Love. Eight points, three of 10, four assists, four turnovers. RJ had 11 points on four, four of 11, two assists, one turnover. So six assists, five turnovers combined for 19 points on seven of 21 shooting. Duke would take that all day long. Um, and, and that's part of that is the matchup aspect of it. Because as we talked about before, R.J. Davis is a smaller guy. Uh, and even though I know Jeremy Roach kind of matches up well with him, 
whenever Wendell Moore's out there or, and you've got some of those big guards across the, the back line, uh, that's a challenge. And so he, he's got to be smart about how he plays and he's got to play, play tough, which he does a good job of, but he can't get in bad positions. And then Caleb, uh, Caleb is so athletically gifted that most of the time when he steps out on the court, he has an advantage. Uh, and it's the games where he does not have an advantage that he tends to really struggle. And that's going to be the case on Saturday night. He's not going to have a, a physical advantage against whether it's uh, more or kills. And so uh, they've got to play smart. They've got to play within their, their skill sets. But you, you mentioned kind of attacking. Uh, some of the great Carolina teams who have been able to go into uh, Cameron and win, it's because, yes, they've got good guys in the post for sure, but there's been a lot of layups, a lot of drives, a lot of taking advantage of, of Duke's overplaying uh, and, and really forcing the issue. You know, when you start talking about RJ, because he's smaller, he has a hard time when he gets into the paint of getting good shots up. And then Love tends to kind of get out of control. And uh, I think the wild stat about, about Caleb is, uh, let's see if I've got it here. I was looking at it not too long ago. Caleb's shooting – uh, in ACC play, which is nuts, I think he's shooting 35% from two. Mm-hmm. And last year it was 34.8, which is wild. So basically his, his offensive efficiency increase has solely been from beyond the arc. Uh, and and that, that's an issue for a guy that size, that athletic, to not be able to, to really finish, whether it's you know taking little jumpers or you know, the floater that just doesn't seem to fall for him or getting to the rim and making shots. Those are all things that don't bode well for North Carolina. So, so being able to capitalize when you're in those situations is going to be key. And look, we know that North Carolina is going to have to play at least their A game to win this, right? And that's what we're talking about. Caleb's got to be better than he typically is against this level of competition. RJ's got to be better. Armando's got to stay out of foul trouble. Leakey's got to have his best defensive game of the year. All these things have to stack upon one another, but that's what it's going to take for North Carolina to pull this off. All right, Tommy, you want these stats? Yep. All right, make sure I'm not muted. All right, here we go. Uh, let's start with R.J. Davis. R.J. Davis attempts 43% of his threes off the dribble. He's shooting 29% from three off the dribble, 50% catch and shoot. Caleb Love attempts 55% of his threes off the dribble and shoots 35.7% off the dribble and 42% on catch and shoot. As a team, UNC attempts 28% of its total threes off the dribble because Brady Manick does not shoot his off the dribble. They're a catch and shoot. Um, But as a team, they shoot 39% from three on catch and shoot, 32% off the dribble. So what's the overall takeaway there from those stats, Mr. Ashley? For me, and Sherelle can chime in better, when the ball doesn't stick and you find the open guy, they shoot significantly better. Uh, I mean, it's not even close. And I noticed that against a team like Syracuse or, or against a team like NC State. Caleb's in love with that dribble, 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 step back jack. But the numbers show you that Sherelle's catch and shoot when they move it it's the money shot for this team 
Yeah, I mean, it's simple. When you move the basketball, it makes it harder for the other team to catch up on rotations, giving you an easier shot, a cleaner look. So, I mean, it's it's not complicated, but, uh, you know, to Gregory's point, assists to made field goals, to me, is, you know, if not the most important set for UNC, it's probably, you know, one or two or three. Just because when the ball moves and it doesn't stick, you have great shooters. Um, they have three guys now shooting, I think, 38% or above, maybe even higher. When the ball doesn't stick, you get open threes. And when you get open threes, what happens? Teams come out to the perimeter to guard you, and that gives Armando Baycott a lot of room. We've seen that Brady Manick is an excellent cutter and an excellent passer. So it just frees everything up very much um, like passing to open up the run. That's kind of what making those um, those threes does, is it just opens everything up. And then Baycott can go in and, and, and pound the ball in the middle, and everything pivots off of that. So – um, they just have to be cognizant of it. And I'll go back to this. That is real mental toughness. Real mental toughness is going into a place like Cameron where the decibel level is going to be insane, <clears throat> where everyone hates you and it's not panicking. It's doing, you know, what you're taught to do is making the right basketball play as mundane, as boring as that sounds. That's what real mental toughness is. And I think North Carolina over this five game road winning streak and in, in some games that have been in very tough environments and where they've struggled, but found a way to win. I think you're seeing them develop that in real time, whether or not it's enough to withstand Cameron. I don't know, um, but they are equipped. They can do it. Whether or not they will is the question. Let, let me ask you, Sherelle, and I want you to, to, I want Greg to answer too. What are, what are more important stats than assist the made field goals for you for this, for, team? for this Carolina team? Yep. Um, I think I think it's turnovers, assists to made field goals, um, and then I honestly, <laughs> I honestly would say number of shots attempted by the guards are the three that I always like to look at, because when when those guys get up towards 17, 18, 19, 20, um, I, again anecdotal. So please fact check me on this, everyone. I'm. This is anecdotal, but it feels like when those guys get to those numbers, when, when Davis and Love combined for 36, 37 shots, that that doesn't bode well for UNC. Um, when it's more evenly distributed, when it's, you know, 12, 14, 11, 15, and 6 or something like that, it feels like they play better in, in that. So those are the ones I look at. The, the made the field goals uh, made to assist ratio, um, you know, the turnovers, and then the shots by the guards. What do you think, Greg? What do you think about those stats? You like that order? Yeah, I'm okay with that. I think just looking here, if you look at the games that North Carolina has won, uh, they have dished out an average of 16 assists per game. And in the games that they've lost, that number drops to 11. So while five may not seem like a lot, it's an awful lot. It's a minimum of 10 points, right? A minimum, yeah. Right. Uh, that's that's a big number, and then the the other component of that is, you know, in, in losses, uh, RJ shooting thirty nine percent, Caleb shooting thirty four, and then wins RJ shooting forty eight percent, Caleb shooting forty, so pretty significant differentials there uh, with the guard played out. Yeah, we we've had this conversation and this this debate before. Um, I think it all begins and ends with Baycott. And part of that is the discipline and the patience is that, that mental toughness that uh, Sherelle is talking about is just because Baycott's your best option doesn't mean he's your only option. 
but things need to flow through him because when he's having success down low, teams have to account for him. And we've seen it multiple times over the past month. Teams are double teaming him. Teams are fronting him and sending somebody on the weak side, all these things. And you look at his numbers and his scoring numbers have actually diminished. But what's happened? Brady Manick's numbers have skyrocketed. Caleb Love's scoring numbers have skyrocketed. So those guys are benefiting because everybody's paying so much attention to Baycott. Uh, and so they've done a better job of late really trying to get the ball inside. Even when teams are trying to take, take him away, they still have to be persistent in trying to get the ball down low. Baycott's done a better job of late passing back out. He's not the black hole that he used to be. So all these things work together. And when he's firing the ball back out of the post, then you get that ball movement, then it's better for everybody. So all these things work together, but in losses where they've really kind of gotten blown out, everything just kind of crumbles. And you see you know, more turnovers, you see less assists, you see the guards really trying to take over, taking bad shots, and you see Baycott kind of left standing there like, hey, I'm, I'm here. Uh, and That can happen on Saturday. To Sherelle's point, I don't really know why I didn't think of this directly, but the mental toughness part, is going to be crucial because when they left last game and leaky talked about, we just, they just, we just didn't compete. That's what leaky said. Right. Um, and everyone was like, how do you not get up for a UNC Duke game? In hindsight, it's not that they didn't get up for it and weren't ready for it. That's the easy cop out. But I, I think it really is that mental toughness to understand that the opponent across from you is doing everything it can to take your game away from you and then having to fight back to that. Because what we've laid out as UNC's recipe for success on Saturday, there, there's not many ways that this team can actually win this game when you look at it, right? Like there's, it's very simple on how UNC can win or be competitive. Duke's going to do everything in its power to take all that away. They're going to do everything in their power to eliminate Baycott. They're going to frustrate the guards and make Caleb do his stupid shots and bad turnovers and things like that. Like that's what Duke's going to do. And to have that toughness that Sherelle said to prevent that. And when that is starting to happen to counter it, as we've talked before about this team's inability to counter at times, that's what gets this team one of its biggest wins um, in regular season history. And, uh, you know, they, they can't panic. That's, that's the thing they did in the first two. Not years. at all. They panic. Yeah. And, you know, I want to, I want to make a point, but the Pittsburgh game is just sitting right there on the Kim Palm site in pink. And I, I, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm gonna make this point. And then I see the Pittsburgh game. I'm like, no, I can't say that, but it, it does seem like minus the, the Pittsburgh blemish that they have developed some form of, of, of mental toughness when you go to Clemson and win that game. I mean, really, it started at the Louisville game. That, to me, that was the beginning in that they made some just huge mistakes and huge errors over and over and shot themselves in the foot repeatedly but still find a way to win. Then after the Duke game, they picked themselves up, won a, a really highly contested game at Clemson. You know, Then they go out and destroy Florida State. Then that game that we won't talk about happens, but they go to Virginia Tech, pit themselves up and win in a crazy environment. Uh, they beat Louisville, who was really game and, and uh, obviously is, is better than I think their record is. Uh, they go to NC State, where those people hate North Carolina more than anything on this entire planet. And then they play against Syracuse, where they're down, you know, with a couple of minutes left and a guy having, you know, the game of his life and find a way to win in overtime. So 
if it wasn't for the Pittsburgh game, I was like, look, man, this team is tough. They they're on a roll. You know, they've won. It, I guess it would have been 11 of 12 or 10 of 11. Um, but there's always that little bit with this particular team where you're just like, I, you can't trust them in, in big spots. Can you actually trust them? Um, and even though they've done it, um, they still have to do it consistently. And so um, I think they'll handle the environment on Saturday better. Uh, and that doesn't mean they're going to win, but I do think they'll handle it better than they did um, against Duke. I, frankly, against Duke, I think they might have come out too amped up a little bit, and it it sucked the win out of them for for a while. They recovered, and then Duke, you know, had a, had a better second win, and, and their talent took over. Um, but I do think they'll handle the mental part better this time. Greg, what's the X factor Saturday night that we're not talking about? We're not talking about or that think, we haven't talked about. I think three point shots have to fall. I, mean, I agree that Duke's going to try to take away Baycott, but just like we said, that uh, you know, Bancaro needs to, to get what he's going to get. You know, Roy Williams was he preached that, right? Like, I don't mind if one guy goes off, uh, everybody else is not going to. And that's one of the reasons we talk about all the time. Oh, this guy got a career high against Carolina, and this guy got a career high against Carolina. That's just kind of the design is one guy is not going to beat you most of the time. And I, I think Duke will follow the same path. Like, you know, Baycott's going to get his. He, he's a great rebounder, one of the best in the country. Uh, as contender for ACC player of the year. But what they have to do is they have to run North Carolina off the three-point line. Because if Carolina wins this game, it's not because Baycott has 26 and 18. It's because North Carolina was – 12 of you know 32 from three uh and I, I think i think that's it and so we get back into the conversation about moving the ball and all those kind of things that's how carolina gets good shots that's how they have to make them the shots have to fall uh you, and you don't want to get in a situation where you're relying on love jacking up 25 footers and getting lucky in them going in um i mean that that would be beneficial but you can't rely on that that's not a game plan and i, I just i think we've talked about so many times in this series history, hey, you know, Carolina has to defend the three because if Duke gets hot, watch out. Well, I mean, Carolina's switched how they play basketball these days, right? And so I think the three-point shot is the ultimate equalizer, and Carolina has to be able to rely on that at uh, Cameron. What about rebounding? Because Duke got rebounded UNC 40-24 to 24 last time, and I know that coincides with making shots. But, <laughs> I was about to say, Carolina could um, anything. <laughs> but I, I, I do think that that's also something that we haven't talked about if that Tommy to answer your question. Right. Like, I think that's one thing that um, more than just Baycott going after the basketball off the glass, I think. Yeah. I mean, Duke's a more athletic team, right? So one through five, they're more athletic. You would expect them to be as good or better on the boards. I think leaky will be huge in this game um, on the boards because he does have the capability. Um, I, I really want to see him and Wendell Moore on each other because to me, Wendell Moore is a, kind of a, a leaky 2.0 a little bit. Um, very similar players and, and leaky, the way he's playing right now um, is not far from where Wendell Moore is, but that, that's here nor there. But I, th I do think leaky can help on the boards. Um, my X factor, I, I think it's RJ Davis. Uh, we're talking about how the ball moves and, getting people open. I think RJ Davis has, has gotten really good at moving the ball at getting to the right spot um, and finding shooters in their groove and him himself as a shooter had been in, in a relative slump, I think over the last, you know, 
two or three weeks. And then he hit five of 11 against Syracuse. Now, obviously that was his own, but if the ball moves, like we think, I think Davis um, could get some open threes. And if he can knock some down, that definitely helps UNC a ton. If, if he can be up around 15 shooting a, a decent percentage, um, you know, I think that that's really big for North Carolina. So Gregory, uh, last round of questions as we close out this long on the beat sponsored by Johnny T-shirt. Uh, Carolina wins the game if, Gregory. Carolina wins the game if RJ and Caleb's assist to turnover ratio is greater than 2.5. And they combine to make eight threes. So it's totally on RJ and Caleb in your mind. Not totally. But no, but I just think those are two things that I think need. if UNC wins this game, those are two stats that we will be looking at. All right, Sherelle. Uh, if Mark Williams plays 15 minutes or less because of foul trouble or ineffectiveness, because I, I, I really do think he's that important and that his absence changes how Duke has to play defense and that uh, helps North Carolina tremendously because you can't overplay as much when he's not in the game, which helps Caleb Love, which helps the shooters, which helps Manic, which helps Baycott. Even though Theo John is, is a very good defender, um, I like I would like North Carolina's chances a little bit better with him in the game versus Williams. 15 minutes or less? Yeah, I, he was at 25 in the last game, and it, it was almost impossible for North Carolina to do anything, not mentioning uh, the fact that he had a 188 offensive rating and nine points and made all four of his field goals. So. Of 180. Greg Barnes, Carolina wins this game if. Well, I like what Gregory Antrell said. Um, I think if Leaky Black is able to shut down AJ Griffin, I think if he completely locks him down like we've seen him do, some guys, uh, that will that will limit what Duke can do offensively. Uh, and I think that gives Carolina a chance. I think if if Leaky's not able to contain uh, his his option, his offensive option. Carolina's just not going to have enough firepower to, to match Duke. But if he's able to, to lock down their top perimeter guy, then Carolina has a fighting chance. So uh, I don't know that I buy that it's all defense. I think maybe Sherelle said that earlier. But I do think Leaky, um, Leaky has to have an incredible game defensively and – we talked about Mark Williams being defensive player of the year. Leakey's right there with him. I, I don't, you know, I think the stats probably favor Williams just because of the blocks and media members tend to look at the stats. Uh, but Leakey's been great, and I think he needs to be great again on Saturday. To recap right. what we said, a lot needs to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to rebound, you got to assist, you got to shoot well, you got to play defense, you got to. Get Mark Williams in foul trouble. I, I think they got to go straight at Mark Williams. I, I mean, I think you attack him. I think if Baycott um, goes straight at him and empowers him, then they he's got an opportunity. But if he tries to be cute with him, he's just going to get his shot blocked and, and get frustrated. It'll be fun to watch at Cameron. I don't. I do not think the environment in Cameron will be any better. Um, than it ever has been when it comes to Saturday night. It's going to be off the charts. And I've been in there. Uh, I know, Greg, you've been in there plenty, Gregory. Um, it's going to be insane. This Carolina team can do it. The question is, will they do it? 
Greg Barnes, last question for you since you're the, you're the NCAA tournament um, guy. Carolina, what do they need to do in these next two ball games, Duke and first round of the ACC tournament? Are they Do they have to split it? Um, can they lose two? Uh, if they win two, the answer is obvious. What's going on here in that regard before we get out of here? Well, I think winning one of, of two. Well, if they win Saturday, they're in. If they, if they lose Saturday, I think they probably need to win uh, in, in the quarterfinals, probably against Wake Forest, to feel comfortable on Selection Sunday. Uh, that's not to say that if they lose both these games, they're out. But I think losing Saturday will drop them back to the discussion of, you know, first four buys. And then it's really up to, well, who are they competing against? Well, uh, Notre Dame, Miami, Wake Forest. So if they lose to Wake Forest in the ACC tournament, maybe Wake jumps them. And then you got to take into account all the other uh, tournaments. You know, if Murray State gets knocked out of their conference tournament, they're in regardless. And so that's the spot getting taken away. So can they get in if they lose the next two? Yes. Is it going to be anxiety riddled uh, watching the selection show? Yes. So win one of these next two, or at least you know, take care of business Saturday, you're fine. And if you don't win one in the ACC tournament to feel okay. Uh, but look, we, can, we, we won't dive into it. I can go on forever. We've talked a lot about the, the one and seven record against Q1 teams clearly important Carolina has played 18 games against Q3 and Q4 teams only one team in the top 50 of the net has played more games against Q3 and Q4 opponents and that's Murray State wow. so uh, the ACC is the ACC it's not the ACC of old and this is a mid-major league this year and that's why Carolina's on the bubble it's just the facts of the situation. People don't like to hear it. It is what it is. Uh, Mid-major the, league. Greg Barnes, folks. It is. Greg, Greg at Inside Carolina. The it is. ACC is I'm, putting that on, I'm putting that on Twitter tomorrow. <laughs> Saturday, though, I found this fascinating. Uh, average ticket price to get into Cameron's a little bit over $5,000. According to the people who track this stuff, which is funny that people actually track this, if that holds – that'll be the fourth highest average ticket into a sporting event since the stuff's been tracked. And the three, three sporting events, events above were all Super Bowls. Super Bowls, yeah. Wow. Nuts. So we're all going, right? We're all – we'll put it on well, the Well, picking up the tab, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Could you imagine he gets that, exp that expense on the – But that, Greg, that goes to Greg's point. There's no pressure on North Carolina whatsoever. No one expects anything. All the pressure, whether they want to admit it or not, all the pressure since the game ended on Tuesday night has been on Duke. Can you imagine being on the team that lost Coach K's last home game? I mean, that, that is pressure they're going to feel. They're feeling it now. They're feeling it right now. Wherever they are, sleep, eating, eating a late dinner, wherever they are, they're feeling it. And, you know, North Carolina has to take advantage of that because, I mean, it's going to get real shaky in there if North Carolina gets up, you know, me and Greg have this stat that we go back and forth on uh, about how North Carolina plays in Cameron. If they were to get up somehow nine or 10 points, it's going to get real nervous in that building and everything is going to get constricted and everything's going to get tighter and the jump shots are going to be a little bit harder and you're going to start breathing a little bit uh, faster and, and just everything is going to be tightened. That's the kind of pressure that Duke is under in that game. And North Carolina is just like, okay, show up and play. So I think they do have that going for them. They got to take advantage of it. 
It'd be fun to watch. It, you know, I'd like to see a competitive game come down to the wire and see the effect that you guys are talking about. With anyone not- anyone want to pick a Carolina win, Tommy? I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, do I think they can? Sure. Yeah. I, I'm not prepared to pick this game. I will reserve my judgment maybe to – I see live on Saturday with Joey Powell and uh, if he tries to pull one out on me. But, yeah, I mean, to be in Cameron, to see Carolina get a lead in that, that'll that'll be quite the interesting thing. We'll be watching. Greg, are you covering? Are you there? I'm there. Greg Barnes there. Gregory, did you get a pass? No, but Ross did. Oh, my gosh. Well, it'll be fun. It'll be good stuff. Boys, it's been fun. On the Beat Live has been two hours, two hours on the dot tonight. I hope the people that have been here the entire time and listened um, have enjoyed it. We talked a lot about football, a lot about basketball, Duke Carolina. We'll be back next week at some point. Um, ACC tournament might mess with the schedule, but Make sure you rate us, review us, subscribe. The YouTube channel is now over 10,000. We got to figure out who the 10,000th subscriber was and hook them up with something. Um, and also support Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Everybody, be safe. We're out. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner I. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bet. Do average 29 and 11. God, what it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Forward, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing.